How many of you know that our gratitude should always extend far beyond how we feel? I heard a story many years ago about this monk who decided to move to a monastery and make a vow of silence. And during his time there, after 10 years, he was allowed to go and say just two words to the head monk. And so 10 years went by, and he went to the head monk, and the first two words he said was, food bad. And so he went back, another decade passed by, and he comes back, is allowed to say his two words to the head monk, and he said, bed hard. And so he went back for another 10 years, and at the end of that 10 years, he said to the head monk, I quit. To which the head monk says, I'm not surprised you've been complaining ever since you got here. <laughs> I guess the lesson there is that we've only got so many words. So let's use them to be thankful for what we do have instead of focusing on what we don't have. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, I'm excited for us to dive into the next installment of our series, All In. And if you are just joining us, we are going chapter by chapter through the book of Acts. And today we're going to dive into Acts chapter 18. And so turn there with me in your Bible, if you would. As you're turning there, I'm going to just pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you sent it to heal our diseases. Thank you, Lord, that your word is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. Father, I pray that today, Lord, that by the power of the Holy Ghost, we would have ears to hear. Ears to hear, Lord, what your spirit is saying to the church. And God, I ask now, Father, that our hearts would be found as fertile soil by which the seed of your word would land. So, Lord, we thank you for that. We come against distractions, Lord. But, Lord, today we pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done in this place. In Jesus' name. And all God's saints say, amen. amen. All right, Acts chapter 18, start in verse 1. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews <clears throat> to leave Rome. Now, let me just stop here and give you a few footnotes if I could. <clears throat> Last week, we read Acts 17, and we talked about the three different cities that Paul had traveled to. And now we find him in the city of Corinth. Now, here's something that you need to know about Corinth. Corinth was considered sin city during the first century. Like what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth kind of thing, right? Like, first off, the temple of Aphrodite, which is the goddess of love and beauty, was located in Corinth. And it was said to have housed somewhere around a thousand prostitutes. And of course, prostitution was legal in Corinth, making it notorious for all of its sexual immorality. But not only was there widespread sexual promiscuity, but Corinth was a very wealthy city, which kind of bred a culture of greed and, and materialism, one in which what people were far more interested in their own interests than the needs of others. But then in addition to that, Corinth had a reputation for engaging in unethical business practices. 
where the majority of the people were associated with fraudulent and deceitful activities. And then, of course, there was idolatry. Like in addition to the uh, temple of Aphrodite, there were many other temples that were dedicated to various gods and, and goddesses, which involved various festivals and religious ceremonies that, honestly, I can't even describe from the pulpit, nor would I want to. But I mention these things to you because I want you to give an un- get an understanding of the type of people by which Paul is trying to reach there. And, of course, Paul writes two letters later on to the, the church of Corinth, telling them to turn away from the immoral practices that were so prevalent there in uh, their city. He tells them in one particular verse that their body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and that they are not their own, that they were bought with a price. And he tells them to glorify God in their body. Church, let me ask you something. Have you ever asked yourself the question, how can I glorify God in my body? I mean, we talk about in the different ways, you know, that we, we want to glorify him in the spirit and when we, in all those things. But, like, how can we glorify him in our body? I think we start answering that question by acknowledging, as Paul states, first of all, that we are not our own. Our bodies are God, God's gift. They're God's gift that he gives us and purpose for us to have in ways that honor and reflect his love, his mercy, and his grace. That means that we are to practice sexual purity, which is not uh, the same thing as practicing safe uh, safe sex, just in case you're wondering. Paul describes what sexual purity looks like in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, now for the matters that you wrote about. So clearly there was already some questioning about what we can and can't do because Paul addresses that and he says this. He says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. Now, what's that mean? That means if you are a man, you are only supposed to have sex with the woman that you are married to. And if you are a woman, you are only supposed to have sex with the man that you're married to. And anything that is outside of that is sin. Now, someone's like, Pastor, you're, you're judging me. No, judgment's way above my pay grade. I'm just telling you what God's word says. And I love you enough to tell you that if you choose to live outside of the covenant of marriage, which God ordained and established, not me, just know that there are consequences that come as a result of being disobedient to God. Like, watch this. You're free to choose to sin, But you're not free from the consequences that come as a result. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now, I feel like we need to put a little bit of extra emphasis on this. Because I think that like Corinth, the church has accepted 
some of the practices of the world. And by the way, if this happens to be you, please know that I love you and that the church loves you and that God loves you. But I love you enough to let you know that if you continue down that road, you will end up on a dead-end street. How? Because the Bible says the wages of sin are death. Immorality will never produce righteousness. Are y'all hearing me this morning, church? Friends, can I just ask you to consider something for a moment? Jesus chose to go to the cross because of sin. Now think about that. I mean, like, if there had never been sin in the world, then the cross would not have been needed. But let me just go and set the record straight if I could. There isn't a person in this room that hasn't sinned. Are you with me? Like, I've sinned. You've sinned. Your grandma has sinned. I know some of y'all are like, not granny. Yeah, even her, right? And guess what? Jesus came to die for sinners like me and you and grandma, okay? feel like doing an altar call right now because, listen, what you need to know is you need to know that no matter what sin you've committed and no matter how many times you have committed it, the blood of Jesus is able to cleanse you, it's able to reconcile you, and it's able to put you back in right standing with God. 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins. By the way, do you know that this scripture was written to believers? I hope that encourages some of you who says, I've messed up. Guess what? Both hands are up for me. I've messed up more times than I've, I can count. But the scripture teaches us that when we mess up, when we make mistakes, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, some translation says to purify us, to set us back in that place of purity. That's what we call grace, church. God's unmerited favor, and thank God for his grace. But Paul instructs us, as recipients of this wonderful thing that we call grace, to not take it for granted. That's why he says in Romans 6, Verses 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So what's the takeaway here? Once we have become aware of the destructive nature of sin, first, we repent of it. We change our mind and we change our direction and watch this, we don't look back. Are you hearing me? Why would you want to look back? It's like the proverb says, it's like a dog, you know, who returns to his vomit. What the dog doesn't realize is what was in the vomit to start with is what made the dog sick. So we don't look back. We don't look back. And that's right at the heart of what Paul is saying here when he, he writes his letter. Now in verse 2, there's one other quick thing that I, I want to mention. It's just a good uh, historical understanding of what took place whenever the emperor Claudius was uh, in reign from 41 to 54 AD. Verse 2 says that Claudius ordered all of the Jews to leave Rome. Now, this right here in itself, this is significant on, on so many fronts, but I just want to highlight one uh, particular point. 
Whatever, the Jewish Christians were expelled from Rome. It meant that there was at least a five-year period where both Jewish and Gentile Christians were not living together in community. Now think about this for a minute. They were separated from one another. And so whenever the Jewish Christians were allowed to come back to the Rome, they found their Gentile brothers engaging in some worldly behaviors, but the Gentiles found their Jewish brothers were engaging in some legalism, which, by the way, watch this, is the reason that the, Paul wrote the book of Romans. Did you know that? Because that's what the book of Romans was for. It was to bring about reconciliation between the Jewish and the Gentile believers. And here's what's really cool. If you'll dig in just a little bit deeper into the book of Romans, you'll find truths and principle that still serve us to this day in terms of bringing about modern-day racial reconciliation. Hey, maybe we'll do a, a series upcoming on Romans. How about that? Okay. <laughs> so Paul lands in Corinth. He meets a man named Aquila. There's a baby name for all you mamas that are looking for one. And Aquila had a wife named Priscilla. In Acts 18, verses 2 and 3, it says, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Now, I don't know if you've ever read this verse before, and you've wondered, why was Paul a tent maker? I mean, we know that Paul was a, a highly educated man and that he held all these high positions. Well, a couple of things. First of all, just because you're educated doesn't mean that working with your hands is a bad thing. As a matter of fact, can I just say, and this is the absolute truth, some of the most educated people that I know choose to work with their hands. And they happen to be really well off. <laughs> and no doubt, Paul, uh, he wasn't wanting to put a uh, financial burden on the churches that he served. And so he worked hard so that he wouldn't have to. Not only that, but being a tent maker, that was one of the most common jobs during that time. So that meant that Paul put himself right in the middle of the marketplace, which you know that that was intentional. By the way, can I just say that this right here is something that I can relate to? I share this with you guys from time to time that, that I have a business. Um, I've had a, my own business now for almost uh, 11 years. To be honest with you, I never planned on starting it. I just, I needed to do some tent making whenever we got this church started because there was none of you here at the time. And so I said, well, I got to put some food on the table. And so I started a business and God breathed on it. And here we are 11 years later and it's still doing well, right? Yeah, thank God for that. <clears throat> and by the way, at any point, uh, I could easily have walked away from this and let the church pay me a salary and there wouldn't be anything wrong with that, okay? But can I just tell you that I've loved uh, having to um, not worry about increasing any financial expense on the church, but even more than that, I love the opportunity that God has given me through my business and through me being in the marketplace. What I mean by that is I've had the opportunity to get to lead several of my clients to Jesus, several of them who are now in our church. So I can understand why Paul chose to be a tent maker when he could have easily chose to let the church support him. Now let's read verse 4. It says, And he, being Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. So he's working all week long making tents. 
I can relate to this. And then he'll come in on the Sabbath, and he would teach the people, right? This is, and this, by the way, this is much the same of what we've read the last two chapters, Acts 16 and 17. We see Paul continually doing the same thing. Verse 5 says that whenever Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Or one translation says that Paul had began devoting himself completely to the word. Now, I love how in verse 3, Paul was busy working, making tents. But now in verse 5, it says that he was occupied with the word or that he was completely devoted. I think that speaks to the reality that there are times where we are to focus on one thing, but then there are other times where God has called us to focus on another. Like when you're at work, it's time to focus on work duties. It's not the time to be sitting there and trying to put together your Amazon wish list. Y'all are quiet because you're getting convicted, all right? But when you're at home, it's time to focus on family. It's not the time to bring work home with you. Now watch this. Sure, you're free to do whatever you want to do, guys. But choices have consequences. Not only that, let me say the positive side of it. Choices also have rewards. Wonderful rewards if we make the right decisions. You guys have heard me say this before. Decisions determine destiny. But what I'm talking about here, church, really it's setting boundaries in our lives. Because if you don't set boundaries and predetermine what you are or aren't going to allow, watch this, someone will cross them. Are y'all hearing me, friends? I'm talking about fixing your focus. By the way, let me give you permission to be free from thinking that you have to respond to every phone call, every text message, every Facebook message, every email right when it comes through. Because look at me, you don't. 24 hours is plenty of time for you to respond. It doesn't have to happen right away. Hey, I said this to you last week. Let me say it again. If they ain't kissing you or writing you a check, they can wait. See, what I found is that whenever I say yes to one thing, that means that I'm saying no to something else. And oftentimes, the thing I end up saying no to is the greater thing. I shared this with you a few weeks ago, but I know that I get an average of 12 texts and 12 phone calls every day. And for years, I responded to almost all of them, like immediately. And then one day it dawned on me uh, why I could never get anything done. Right about the time that I'd get deep in thought with a task, something would ring, ding, or vibrate. Now, honestly, I didn't fully understand this even till here recently whenever I had uh, my pastor's pastor. I've been going to this thing, by the way, uh, church, uh, once a week um, for four months where I've been sitting under my pastor's pastor. He's been teaching 50 lessons for 50 years of ministry, and man, it's been so good. I mean, so good. But um, what I learned was that, and, and, and psychologists have shown that this is, is true, that it can take an average 
of 23 minutes and 15 seconds in order to fully recover from a deep level of concentration after being distracted. Psychologists call this attention residue. In other words, it takes that long in order to be able to fully re-engage with the original task. And so that means we have got to guard our time. Friends, can I just give you some little good practicals right now? Look, this thing right here that we keep on us, it's always buzzing, watching, everything else. Take that thing, go in there and sit that sucker in your room. Shut the door, hit Turn it off. Put it on airplane mode. People will know when they call the it goes right to voicemail. And go focus on your priority. Focus on the thing that God has called you to. And don't just let someone say, hey, man, what you up to? You know, go in and throw. Look, you can call them back later. Y'all with me? I'm giving you some practicals that's going to set you free because I've lived so many years of my life focused on something. I'll be in deep thought and concentration being productive about the kingdom, and then something, you know, I don't know, you know, something will pop up in an eBay. Hey, you think about buying this? And I'm like, what, huh? And I'm off, and then it takes me 23 minutes and 15 seconds to get back. I think this is what Paul was doing whenever it says he began devoting himself completely. Completely. He worked hard. And he fully engaged his heart with what he was doing. But how many of you know that just because you work hard and you give your heart to something, that still doesn't mean that things will always work out the way that you would want them to? Hmm? Paul shared Christ with the Jews, but in verse 6 it says, they opposed Paul and became abusive. Now, I think this verse has so many applications. Because who would say that you've worked hard at a relationship? Maybe uh, with a friend, a family member, a co-worker, and your efforts resulted in a completely different outcome than what you had hoped for. Anyone? Hands up. Anyone? Okay, right? So what do you do when that happens? What do you do? Well, I think that there's really no one-size-fits-all answer to that question. But part of the answer lies in the extent of the opposition. And what I mean by that is the Bible says that the Jews became abusive. So this opposition led Paul to remove himself from the situation. And likewise, if you find yourself in a similar place to where you're being abused, it may be necessary for you to separate yourself from that person in order to seek safety and protection. Y'all hear me? Now, that doesn't mean that that's going to necessarily be the end of the relationship, but it also doesn't mean that it won't either. But watch this. Abuse has no place in any relationship. Let me say it again. Abuse has no place in any relationship. And I just want to let you know that if you are in a relationship where you're being abused, you have a way out. Don't believe the lie that this has to be your life. As a matter of fact, right now, um, we're putting up a, a website address here that's going to be on the screen in case uh, you or someone you know needs this. It's www.thehotline.org. 
And we're also putting up a phone number, 1-800-799-7233. And let me just tell you, this works because I tried it this week. I said, before I can tell this to the people, i got to make sure that it's legit. And I called it, and I had a wonderful person right on the other end of the phone that could have got me into one of ten different places just like that, especially for ladies. But there's also a lot of great places for men because, look, I know that we always think that it's just women that have faced abuse, but, man, there's men that have faced it in a lot of different ways. And sometimes, men, the abuse we face might not even be in the home, but it may be in the workplace. And you may not even realize that you're being abused. As a matter of fact, I think there's a lot of people that are being abused, and they don't even realize that they're being abused. They don't realize that they're being controlled and manipulated. So you might even want to go and go and read up from that website what all abuse is. Because abuse isn't just physical. Y'all hear me this morning? Huh? Y'all with me? Verbal, there's verbal abuse. Look, there's spiritual abuse. Hello? How many of y'all have ever been on the end of that? I have, right? But here's a great resource for you guys. And these, this, these folks will help you to, to find a safe place. And let me just say this, that if you are here at Destiny and you're in an abusive relationship, you just come and see one of us pastors or one of us elders, and we will help you to get to that safe place. Are you hearing me this morning, church? Is it okay if I just give some practical real-life what-to-dos for just a moment? I understand that this doesn't apply to the majority of you, but if one person hears this and gets free, then it's worth me spending two minutes of my message and talking about it. Agree? Okay. So back to our story in Acts. So Paul focused his attention away from the Jews and onto the Gentiles. And he stayed with a man named Titus, where he taught many people about the Lord, and many came to believe as a result. Verse 11 says that he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now, friends, this right here is what you call discipleship, right? He spent a year and a half with them. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that we highly encourage people that whenever they've given their lives to Christ to um, get connected in a community group. Because it's so important that whenever someone gives their lives to Christ that they have a community uh, surrounding them. Because accepting Christ isn't the uh, end of something, it's the beginning of something. Are you with me? And by the way, we see this thing of discipleship just beautifully uh, modeled here for us in Acts chapter 18. And we don't know everything that, that Paul did during that year and a half, but the Bible says this. It says that he taught them the word of God. Church, can I just tell you that you are far more equipped than you realize? I think the reason that so many people don't make disciples are because of one or two reasons. Either one, they don't think that they know enough. But watch this. If all you know is John 3, 16, then teach that. Because I can promise you that there are plenty of people who don't really know what that means. Matter of fact, it was years ago, so I'm going to mess this up a little bit, so give me a little bit of latitude, but they asked a question one time, whatever, Tebow put John 3, 16, how many of you all know what that means? And the majority of the people did not know what it means. So I know that you're thinking, well, everyone knows what John 3.16 is, right? John Deere, you know, John, what, you know, apple pie, John 3.16. We think we know. No, they don't know. They don't really, really know, right? I had someone one time 
uh, once asked me, they said, well, but what if I'm, you know, sharing Christ with someone and they ask me a question and I don't know the answer to? What do I say? Where's what you say? You say, I don't know. I'll look into it and I'll get back with you. Hey, watch this. I still have people who come to me and ask me questions about things about God that I don't know the answer to. And watch this. I'm almost quite convinced that there's going to be questions um, that I'm never going to find the answer to. Why? Because if I knew everything there was to know about God, then that would mean that he's not God. Are you with me? But I just want to encourage each and every one of you, watch this. You already have something that someone else needs. You have truth in you that could set someone free. They just need to hear that truth in order to be able to believe it and apply it. Some of you parents have some good biblical parenting advice that other parents, young parents, need to hear. Some of you that have been married for a while and you've weathered the storms and trusted God through it all. You have some wisdom that needs to be passed down to some young married couples. Teenagers, I know that you guys don't know what a, a, a 401k is. That's okay because guess what? Uh, that doesn't, that's not necessary in order to be able to share Christ with others. Like learn one passage of scripture, get it down pat, and then share that with someone. Like, study God's word like it's a test, because I can promise you that in life you're going to have tests. But the second reason that people don't make disciples is because we are way too busy. Guys, we are busier than any other generation throughout history. I mean, even if someone were to come up today to us and say, please sit with me, teach me the scripture, I want to know more about God. I want to follow his ways. Would we be able to even say yes to that request? Would we even have the time? Well, if we're too busy to share the simple truths of the Bible, then guess what? We're simply too busy. Hello? Let's keep reading in Acts 18. It says, The Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading people to worship God. And then I wonder if the following words weren't an afterthought after they said it. Like, these guys are making these guys worship God. And they're like, uh, um, oh, according to uh, or in ways that are contrary to the law. Hey, I don't know about you, but I would love to be accused of persuading people to worship God. I can't think of any greater persuasion. But in our country, we have a large number of Christians that are more interested in persuading people to change political parties than persuading people to worship God. Is it okay if I just call out what is real? Okay. I'm saying, right, do, do I go here, Lord? Yeah, I will for a minute. Because if you're talking more about politics than you are about Jesus, your heart's not in the right place. I'm going to say it one more time and because this applies to some of y'all. I love you, but it applies to some of y'all. If you're talking more about politics than you are Jesus, like you've got the cart in front of the horse, brother. And it's time that we get that right. Now, hear me. If 
God's word instructed me to go and to get people to change political party lines, and that's what I would be doing. But, hey, that is not what he told us to do. You want to know what he said to do? I'll tell you. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. And, guys, if we will just get people close to Jesus, Jesus, he's going to work, God's going to work out everything else. We ain't got to go and try to feel like, you know, we are Mr. Fix-It in everyone's lives. Jesus, it's like the Holy Spirit is better at his job than you. Because even if you could talk someone into something, someone else could come along who's a better communicator than you and talk you about. So why don't we just trust God for whatever it is that God wants to do? How about that? Yeah, how about that for a thought? Let's just trust God to do the work instead of us thinking that we have to play God and get rid of this Messiah complex. Hello? Paul obeyed his command. And as a result, we see a consistent stream of life transformation from his acts of faith and his acts of obedience. Oh, man. What might we see happen in our lives as we take those acts of faith and those acts of obedience? Let's jump down to verse 18. Here we see Paul returning to Antioch. And the Bible says that he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. Isn't it really interesting how from that point forward, God always, or that Paul will talk about both Priscilla and Aquila instead of Aquila and Priscilla? Let me just tell you something, ladies. I know... I didn't realize this until I moved to Jacksonville. Thank God I grew up in a life-giving church where I didn't see this junk. It wasn't until I moved to Jacksonville that I realized that there's churches that are they're so far off in their theology, right? And, and they think that and they, they, they put women as, as down here. Ladies, you're a daughter of the king. And if someone ever comes and tries to tell you that you can't be used by God because you're a female, here's what you do. You take, I'm going to show you what you do right here. Hello? You walk away and you say, all right, because that is not what God's word says. It says that your sons and your daughters are going to prophesy. God wants to use his daughters in the kingdom. And I love it that Paul says Priscilla first. I think that she was probably way more effective and useful for Paul. That's the reason he mentioned her first. That's just my opinion, but there's a reason why he did that. took Priscilla and Aquila with them. And I love, by the way, what we're seeing here because what we're seeing is we're seeing this year and a half of where Paul poured into the lives of these two disciples. It's paying off because this couple, and we're going to see this in the upcoming weeks, has a significant role to play both in Paul's ministry but also in the advancement of the gospel. And I think this verse right here, it serves as, as an encouragement for those of you who you've poured your life into someone. And maybe you've not yet seen the dividends of that investment. Like maybe it's a friend that you've continually spoken words of truth to. Maybe it's your child to whom you've given and given, but with no results. Well, I said this to you last week, but I'm going to say it again. If you have been sowing the seed of God's word into their life, that seed is still good. That seed is still good. Hey, don't count out what is really just in gestation. 
Let me say it again. Don't count out what is really just in gestation. I know that there may be times where it seems like things are getting worse instead of better. But watch this. Every seed has to first be crushed before it can produce what it was made for. As a matter of fact, I think that's what Jesus was referring to in John 12, 24 when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you. And by the way, if Jesus has to put an emphasis on him saying truly twice, listen up, right? Truly, truly, I say to you. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I feel the need to encourage someone this morning. Expect a harvest. I said expect a harvest. As a matter of fact, turn to the person next to you and say, expect a harvest. Expect a harvest. I also feel this word in my spirit. Watch this. That which you have blessed is about to bless you. Oh, that's a word. Grab it. That which you have blessed is about to bless you. Paul blessed Priscilla and Aquila, but now Priscilla and Aquila is about to bless him. They are about to multiply his ministry. Church, I've lived long enough. This is one of the things I love about getting older. Some things I don't, but I'm grateful about things like this. I've lived enough life now that I've got to see this and experience it. I'm talking about times in my life and people that I've poured into, that those that I've been a blessing to, they are now being a blessing into mine and Jody's lives. And so I just want to testify to you. That every sacrifice that you've made and pouring into other people's lives is worth it. So don't stop sowing. I know there will be times whenever the sacrifice may be harder than others, but I've also found that it's during those sacrificial times of sowing that we often see the greatest yield. Remember what John said in 3 John 1.4 when he said, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. Now, as a father and as a shepherd, I get emotional almost every single time I hear that verse because I can testify that this is true. I have no greater joy, no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, isn't that the truth? Come on, whether you're a spiritual parent or a biological parent, you would agree that there is no greater joy than to hear that our children are walking in the truth. Amen? Because whenever we see them walking in truth, guess what? We see them walking in freedom. And we get to see them fulfill the call of God on their lives. Let's look at verse 23, and we'll end here for today. Verse 23 says, And after spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. I think that what we've read today is such a beautiful picture of what God has called us to. Because today's text reminds us that we are not to follow the pattern of this world, but to be fully devoted to God to fix our focus, and to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But it also emphasizes our need for one another. 
and the importance of us intentionally building up one another and helping one another to become stronger in our faith. And so I just want to leave you with a question, if I could. Who can you encourage, build up, or help this week in order that they would grow in their faith? And the second question and the last is this, will you? Friend, I said this earlier, but I'll repeat it. You have something in you that someone else needs. Something that will cause them to grow in their faith and grow closer in their relationship with Jesus. All that is required is for you to say yes and then go do it. You know, I chose the series. I knew this was going to be a long series. I made sure that I was intentional about the series title that I chose for the book of Acts. And I named the series All In for a reason. Because I want this church to be a church that is all in. Come on, if you are all in, can I just ask you to stand to your feet with me, if you would, as I close this in prayer. I want to lead us in prayer, but I also never want to give a message. I know that a lot of my message today was really directed toward those who have given their life to Jesus Christ, but by chance there may be some that are here today that you've not fully surrendered. You've not been completely devoted to God. That may be for those of you that are uh, here in person, but also those of you that are watching online. And I just want you to know that today God welcomes you. He accepts you. He loves you. He has a purpose for you greater than any purpose that you could ever find outside of him. Are you hearing me? There is nothing in this world that you will find that is better than what God has ordained for your life because God created you. And he created you to worship him. And anytime we do not worship him, our empty hearts crave expression. And so we do some of the things that we talk about today. We run trying to make sex to try to make us happy. Or we try to get a title. Or we try to fill our bank account with money, thinking that those things are going to make us happy. But they won't. Because you were created to worship God. It's only whenever we are giving ourselves 100% completely to God that our hearts are not only full, but watch this. The Bible says, that he pours himself out upon us in such a way he anoints our head with oil and he causes our cup to overflow. God wants us to overflow with his goodness, overflow with his love, overflow with his grace. But it starts with a surrendered heart. It starts with our recognition for a Savior. I said it earlier that all have sinned in this room. Granny, me, you, all of us. We've all sinned. The Bible says it this way in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you have never fully given your life to Jesus Christ, I want you to know that right now, the Bible gives us this wonderful promise that if we would confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we would be saved. Saved, what do you mean, pastor? That's the Greek word, sozos. And here's what it means. It means we'll be whole. We'll be complete. Whatever it is that you need from God, God says back to you, I am. And so if you want to receive salvation, 
if you want your heart to be full, to overflow. You want to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And friends, can I just tell you something? Jesus is the only one who can save. He's the only one who can save. And if you think you don't need saving, I can promise you, you do. Not only that, the moment we breathe our last breath, we will spend eternity in one of two places. I'm not a fear monger. I'm not one who tries to hang fear over someone, but I need you to know that we're going to spend eternity in either a place called hell or heaven. And we can go to heaven one way. That's it, one way. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's it. Good works can't get you there. Sorry. Only faith in Jesus can. And people that reject Christ say, I choose hell because I'll pay for my own sins. But sins have to be paid for one way or the other. You can either pay for it by going to hell or you can allow Jesus, who's already paid the price, and you can receive that free gift of God. And so if that's you, and you know that you're not in right standing with God, I'm going to give you that opportunity right now to put your faith in Jesus Christ and to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart. If that's you, I want to invite you to pray with me. Saints of God, many of which, majority of which in this room have already prayed this prayer. I want you to pray this out loud with those who would say yes this morning. Pray this out loud. Pray, Lord Jesus, I confess my need for a Savior. I ask you, Jesus, be my Lord. Forgive me of my sin. Help me to turn from it. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God, that you died on the cross for the sin of the world. Jesus, I believe that you rose from the grave, just as your word says. And now I want to live my life to know you and to make you known. In Jesus' name, amen.